Hello, and welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. Happy July! Today's episode is a conversation between Vimala Sara and Sue Newfeld Ellis, co-author of Clergy Sexual Misconduct. She has worked in the fields of counseling, nursing, addictions, and psychotherapy since 1981. She has been a meditation teacher for 20 years. But first, I want to say how excited I am to see everyone who has already signed up for the Buddhist Recovery Summit taking place in September. This is definitely something special. Um, When people in recovery come together to listen, learn, grow, and support each other, it's a rare opportunity to be able to connect with Buddhist recovery groups and leaders and teachers and authors for a fun healing weekend together. If you didn't get a chance to sign up already, we do have spots still available and have extended our registration deadline. You can find out more info and register at BuddhistRecoverySummit.org. And don't forget to tune in this Sunday for BRN Academy, Buddhist Recovery Network Academy, we will be recording a live podcast featuring a Dharma talk and live question and answer with teacher Angu Devin Ashwood. All you need to do is get the Zoom link from our website, BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash academy, and you can listen in using your phone or computer. Hope to see you all there. Um, The talk will be on living an authentic life. And now I will introduce Vimala Sara and Sue Newfeld Ellis. I do need to give a brief trigger warning. The subjects covered today include sensitive material, including sexual misconduct in our communities. so much for joining us on a Buddhist Recovery Network channel. It's great to have you here in the studio with us. It just in terms of the work that you've done, the book on clergy and sexual misconduct is just so appropriate for us in terms of what's been happening and being exposed in the Buddhist community. But first of all, it'd be really great for me to just tell me about who you are and your work and your connection to Buddhism. I will. And I'm crying just a little bit because this is, I am so honored and privileged to be a part of this. (laughs) Thank you so much for asking me. I mean, it is amazing. I'm so glad to be able to uh, assist the community in its healing and assist the world. So um, ah, I know (laughs) It's, it's, it's very beautiful. Thank you for asking me to be here. So, uh, oh, wow. So I have a very long history, which, you know, I don't need to go into. I mean, I'll go in some of the things you asked me, and I'll just tell you some of it. Um, but uh, let's see. I have been uh, 
a psychotherapist and a nurse uh, for 40 years and also a chemical dependency counselor and one of the first uh, certified sex addiction therapists. Uh, and I've been doing this work since 1981 as far as the sex addiction and the, the therapy work goes. Um, I've, I've had many journeys this lifetime. I've been a Christian and I've studied. Uh, my husband and I took a three-year trip around the world from 1993 to 1996. And we studied many, many religions uh, around the world with many teachers and in many different um, uh, schools. <laughs> Um, and so I have a, a, a great knowledge of many religions, uh, and I studied a lot of Buddhism <laughs> while I was on that trip. Uh, uh, I can't say it right. Theravanan, Mayanan, I can't say it right, but <laughs> you know That's what I great. Mean. Theravadan, <laughs> Mahayana, we get it. Right, you, know. you know what I mean. <laughs> and, it's all um, a hodgepodge just... these days. <laughs> Isn't it? And Zen, my husband's a big Zen guy, so he's studied a lot of Zen. I haven't studied it that much, but um, as much Listen, as Sue, we're impressed you didn't say you studied mindfulness. If you studied Theravada, Theravada Mahayana or Zen, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, my, my, biggest, my biggest study has been Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. That's probably what I've uh, studied the most uh, is Tibetan Buddhism. But anyway, so... Yes, and then with all, I went to, you know, tons of retreats all over the world, blah, blah, blah. And when I got back to the States, um, anyway, I uh, integrated all that into coming back into the States, which was a whole thing with, within itself with being gone for three years. <laughs> um, and I have a meditation CD that I was given uh, in meditation on a beach in Thailand which has uh, been very, very helpful to thousands of people. Not that I'm promoting that because I'm not. I don't have to. <laughs> I just wanted to serve. And so um, anyway, it's been a great journey. And so back when I got back into the States, um, I saw there was a need to really uh, kind of try to, I'm kind of like with, without going in a big ego thing with John Kabat-Zinn and John Cornfield and, you know, uh, it was about bringing um, uh, Eastern uh, practices into Western medicine, because as we know, now the research after the last 10 or 20 years has been, that, you know, mindfulness meditation uh, helps people with so many conditions. You know, I could go on and on about the research. Which I don't yeah, have. but we must must remember that mindfulness isn't a panacea, I think. Yes. I, it, it's great that actually some doctors are prescribing mindfulness rather than yes. taking a pill, which is yes. absolutely fantastic. But we're right. moving into a time where it's like mindfulness is would do everything for everybody. And, and we know that it will work for some people. And, and actually, it's important to use mindfulness in conjunction with something else if we're working in the field of addictions or bipolar or, or negative mental states or schizophrenia. But the, some of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, yeah. because okay. we are we are in the era of the Me Too movement in the West. Yep. Yep. 
we're in an era where we're exposing what's been happening in the Catholic Church yep. with all the paedophilia which has been happening in the Catholic Church. Yep. And more and more we're beginning to see what is actually happening in the Buddhist community and the sexual transgressions that have happened. Yes. And you have written a book, Clergy and Sexual Misconduct, which I'm yep. really interested about. And what made you write this book to begin with? Okay. So just to let you know, I wrote one chapter in the book, but let me tell you about the book and then we'll go from there. Is that uh, my colleagues, uh, Rob Baker, who's a licensed mental health counselor, and then John Thorberg, who is associate professor of psychology at Seattle uh, Pacific University, they searched the literature and there wasn't one single book that addressed clergy sexual misconduct. There was little snippets here and there and different research studies. So they pulled everything together and then they elicited those of us that are experts in the field to write chapters about all the different aspects. So the chapter that they asked me to write was on uh, uh, clergy wives. And I have dealt with uh, clergy and the wives and ex-priests and ex-nuns, by the way, that have left and have come to do therapy and figure out what they're doing because they're no longer you know, in seminary or they're not in the Catholic Church. And so I've had a, a number of those people over the years. So we brought it all together and it is the first book that addresses clergy, sexual misconduct, how it affects the wives, how it affects the children, how it affects the congregation, and how it affects uh, the judicial system, all of that in one book, which is amazing. So let's, let's break, let, 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 let's break that, that down. I mean, it's a sure. very courageous book with all these chapters in, very courageous book. And I mean, yeah. before we go into the nuts and bolts of, of the book, what yeah. what what do we what does the Buddhist community have to learn from the Catholic Church or the Christian tradition? Well, um, what I want to say is that uh, rather it's in my opinion, having studied all the religions around the world, whether it's Catholics or Protestants or Methodists or what or Buddhists, you know we're all humans, and we all um, have our fallibilities. And we're all on our own path to enlightenment or whatever else, right? And so even though it's even though most of the people I've dealt with or we have dealt with have been Christian, uh, for me it goes across all religions. And I can take it just like I want to do for the Buddhists, and, and I'll do now and also if I'm at you know, when I'm at the summit too, is is how we can you know, put that across. And so I'll tell you. So if we're looking at the from a Buddhist perspective. If we're looking at the Eightfold Path and we're looking at right speech and right action, the third precept of the teacher's code, which I think is your guys' teacher's code, <laughs> is avoiding creating harm through sexuality. And, you know, that is across the line in all religions, is that we're not, that, that ministers, teachers, whatever, are not supposed to, bless their hearts, uh, create sexual harm. And what, what happens is that they do, as we have seen. And so, um, you know, we have to, what, what I, at least with Tibetan Buddhism, which I know we talk about in Tibetan Buddhism, about taking refuge in the sense of 
uh, physical uh, uh, discipline. And I know other Buddhist traditions say the same thing. It's, so we're supposed to take refuge. In other words, life in ethical and disciplined ways, which is not doing harm. So let's uh, let before you right? okay, go, go on to this. This is yeah. great. Not not doing okay. harm. And one yes. of the things that yes. comes to mind for me, and as, as you say, it's human. We are human, and this is yes. what humans do. Yes. And my question is: is when did it change? Because if we look at somebody like Sappho, many mm -hmm. people say Sappho, the greatest poet. Many people say right. that Sappho wasn't a lesbian. And the reason why they say Sappho wasn't a lesbian is because during Sappho's time, it was uh -huh. expected students slept with their teachers. Uh -huh. That's that's what they did during Sappho's time. Uh -huh. If you were a student, you slept with your teachers. Uh -huh. So why has it changed now that we're actually saying this isn't good sleeping with your teachers? This shouldn't happen. How have we got to this place? Well, I think, you know, it's it's a matter of culture and timing, you know, and we're in different decades now than we were before. And so a lot of that was a lot more loose. And maybe it, I don't know, I didn't, I haven't studied it. So I don't know, you might know more than me to speak to this. But it's like, okay, well, those things were happening then. But now it's like, we have seen and we know in the world that it causes emotional, mental, and physical harm. Exactly. Now, of course, that, that's a broad statement, but it depends on the person and how much it affects them emotionally or mentally or physically or spiritually. But see, what I have come to believe and what the research has shown is that when, okay, I'm just going to give you this piece and you interrupt me if you want to, but what, what we've studied is that when people... Rather, it's, I don't care, like we say, it's priests, ministers, Buddhist teachers, whatever, is that people come in, and often people now, and I'm not saying it hasn't been in the past, but uh, I think there's accumulation of trauma that is, uh, in my opinion, come through the DNA, and some people could say past lives or karma or whatever. Yeah, epi but, epi epigenics. Right? Epi epigenic, yes, epigenic, yes. yes. And so it comes forth. And it's like people are wounded. And so what they want a safe place. And one of the safe places they want, they want to become to a sangha or a church or whatever and say, oh, I can come here and I can rest and I can breathe and people aren't going to hurt me and they're going to have my best interests and they're going to nurture me. Well, that might be a high order, but some version of that, you know, people are wanting that. But, but what happens when they come in we have to remember, and this is a piece of keeping the Sangha safe, is that uh, the teachers, in my opinion, have to be screened more. And I know that's a tall order, and I know some people don't want to do that. Denominations, Buddhist communities might not have the money. That's one of the biggest things that we have but researched. But, Sue, if, if it's a human, if it's something that is human, would screening really prevent sexual transgressions would it really prevent teachers having sexual relationships with their students just because they're screened i mean all screening does is tell you if anybody has been unskillful in their past life well that's true and 
what the literature says is it can help. It can help. You're right. It's not the end all or be all, but it can help. If, if Number one, if you have some sort of screening, but even if you don't screen, and we can talk about this more, if, and I know you guys are already doing this because I've been online and I know there's a group in Portland that are researching this and all of this, but I mean, it's in other words saying, we have to have different systems and I'd be happy to share with you what I think some of the systems are that can at least look out for those issues. Now, is it end all and be all is 100%? No, no. And that's why I want to talk about how people keep themselves safe. But I think we have to try to, through organizations like you're going through the board and you guys are doing policies and other people are, to at least say, here's our ethics and here's what will, here's what's safe and what isn't. And if you'll go against these ethics, we're going to remove you or whatever. Do you have I mean, that? I do hear you, right? this, these, these okay. safeguarding policies and yes. about screening, because yes. I know in the UK, when I lived in the UK, when they uh -huh. brought in the Criminal Records Bureau, there uh -huh. was the enhanced the enhanced check. And that was for people who worked with vulnerable people. And those of us right. who are Buddhist teachers or clergy, we right. are always working with vulnerable people. Right. So I totally get it when you say it. we should be police checked. You know, yes. it's not just people who work in mental health institutions right. or who are therapists. I, I totally right. get it. Right. And so, you know, it's like, okay, there's that end of it. And we can talk more about that. And you guys are already doing that because I've already been on the Internet and I've been checking. And you guys are doing a, a really good job of coming, coming forward with ethics and policies and procedures. And that's great. And then let's talk, talk about, about coming let's talk about coming forward because it is incredibly difficult yes. to come forward about yeah. somebody who's been inappropriate whether you are the victim of sexual yep. assault or sexual harassment or sexual abuse or whether you are the witness of the sexual assault the sexual abuse it's incredibly difficult why why is it so difficult to come out about this well um, part of it is uh and this is i want you to also like extrapolate this to the teachers okay because they're human too so the teachers and the and the sangha members have these issues and i'm doing a very broad brush okay so the broad brush is that a lot of people, especially coming into recovery, especially coming into recovery, have trauma and deficits and neglect and abandonment and many issues that are under their acting out behaviors. You know, whether it's sexual or chemical dependency or gambling or whatever it is. So, so those acting out behaviors are at the top. And when, when, you, when you deal with those, then often you get below that, which are the traumas or the, like I said, the deficits, the neglects, the abandonments. And what happens, and I'll just say for the teachers, and this is research now, is that they often come from that too. And what happens is when they go into the ministry or they go into monkhood or they go into, uh, you know, teacherhood in the Buddhist community, they have those things and they haven't healed those or worked on those. And we can't expect 
Buddha or the Dharma or God or to, to heal all those all the time. It doesn't work like that. It'd be great if it did, but it just doesn't. And so they, they need to work on their stuff too. And they need to heal their traumas and they need to heal those deficits. And with a lot of leaders, a lot of leaders, whether they're monks or teachers or priests or whatever, is that they feel lonely, they feel isolated. And so they go in there because they feel really good because people give them adoration, they can help, they feel good about themselves, but it's not really solid. It's like they're getting their kudos from other people or just being in that position. And often what happens is sometimes, not always, but sometimes they live a double life, which is, you know, on the one hand, they're monks and doing this, and on the other hand, they're drinking and sexually acting out with women or doing whatever they're doing, you know, depending on who the person is. And they're trying to fill those needs and say, and often they have resentment, they have entitlement, uh, they have loneliness, isolation. And so they try to get their need. They don't mean it. Con A lot of times this is not conscious. This is really I totally hear you when, when you say that people who go into the clergy or go into a monastery or become Buddhist teachers actually have their own trauma. But yep. also people who work as therapists have their own trauma. But the oh. difference is yes. therapists learn about counter-transference. I mean, it's yes. not saying that it yes. doesn't happen. I right. mean, one of the things that I actually say to teachers is I say, if somebody of the, if somebody is crying and you're a teacher and they're a student, the, the thing you don't want to be doing is going to hug them and hold them. Right. Because we know when somebody is crying, the erotic is actually released, you right. know? And you're holding right. this person who's crying and there's this erotic transference yes. and people misinterpret that. But we don't learn that. I only know that because right. of my therapeutic background. Exactly. That, that's just... That's just a no-no. But yet so often I hear people wanting to storm in and hold the person and soothe the person. And the next thing, six months later, they're in a relationship. Right. You know? and, and what some of the research says along that line is that often teachers and students or whatever the configuration is, because that's, again, this is a power issue. Because right, wrong, or different. The research shows that when you're a student or a priest or a minister, you have a power differential with that person. And that person, it's not equal. And I mean, and so we have to hold the boundary. This is, yeah, this is the right. thing, because I will say, Sue, I was one of these people who would really want to be in bed with the teacher or with yes. the leader. Yes. I would want to. But yes. That person has to hold the boundary, just yes. as if I have people projecting onto me and want to be in bed with me. I have yes. to hold the boundary. I totally Regardless, agree. it's my job to hold the boundary. And, and it's that, a practice. Yes. yes, it is a practice. And the thing is, that's why there, in my opinion, needs to be more education. But there needs to be education of teachers and, and, and priests and therapists and clergy because it is that higher ground. They are held to that. I remember I had a therapist. I'll just tell you the same thing. I had a therapist a long time ago when I was young and he was gorgeous and he was spiritual. 
and he was charismatic and he was great. And I said to him, I said, wow, you know, I, I think I love you. And, you know, I'd like to be with you. And I did all, and, you know, it was so beautiful. He gave, gave me the greatest gift. He said, Sue, no, we're not doing that. I'm your therapist. I'm a spiritual guide for you. And we're not doing that. I mean, kudos to him. You know, and that's kudos, the, yeah. Yes. And I, I tell you what, I actually, I was incarcerated as a child and I ended up having a relationship with one of the prison officers when I came out. Yeah. I'm not surprised. And actually, you know, in a way, they were the ones who told me how they desired me. And, you know, yeah. now I can actually, after watching Leaving Neverland, I could yeah. finally admit that actually this there was an aspect of grooming. I mean, when somebody says, totally. don't tell anybody... That yep. is a sign that something is wrong. When exactly. somebody says, don't tell anybody, keep it a secret, it's just between us two, then you know that actually something isn't right. No, I totally agree. That's number one. Grooming is such a big deal. Rather, it's for children or adolescents or adults. Adults get groomed too. I mean, yeah. everybody can get groomed. And that's one thing to really look for. And so this I is why grooming, play. you know, grooming really happens as a subtext, I think, between teacher and student in, in the Buddhist communities, because it's so easy for the student to become dependent on the teacher. Yes. You know, it's yes. almost like, you know, the student feels that they need the teacher for the help and support. It's like they've opened this person up. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, we assume, a lot of people assume, in my opinion, that the person in power knows what they're doing. And often that can be the truth, but often it's not. They don't know what they're doing because they have their own conscious, unconscious processes going on. And often what the literature says is there's an unconscious process going on between the teacher and the student where they aren't even conscious that they're getting attracted. And then all of a sudden they have this affection and then it goes sexual. So it's really important to make the unconscious become conscious because of that reason. And we could, and you know, when right. we look at craving and clinging yep, on that yep. wheel of life, once, once yep. you've crossed the line once, you continue to do it. You, you, you yeah. continue to do it. Once you've sexually abused somebody, you'll continue to do it. It's yes. like once you've crossed that line. But let's look at this. Let's look look at the impact that when teachers have sexual relationships with uh -huh. their students or uh -huh. there is sexual assault, sexual uh -huh. harassment that's happened. What's the impact on the community? I mean, I have to I should fess up that. I come from a Buddhist community. My Buddhist community is a tree ratna Buddhist community. Uh -huh. And it's had a huge impact with my founding teacher having inappropriate sexual relationships with some of his male students. It's, I, when people come along and get excited, they come along to my center, Sue, and they're really yeah. excited. They're excited in the way yeah. that we we elicit the uh, or elucidate the Dharma for them and the Sangha. Uh -huh. And I have to say, you know what? Before you get too excited, you need to go on the Internet and see what it says about us on the internet before you get more involved. It's crazy, but I have to I say know. that because I know. if 
Good if for people, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to say it because if people really get connected to us, they feel cheated. They feel conned. They think I've conned them. Well, see, one thing I want to put out here, and I really want to put this out, is that as far as the transference and the counter-transference that you're talking about, is that it's really, really, all the research says this, is that there's a transference with folks religiously and spiritually where they transfer the good mom and dad on to the teacher. They, they do that. And right, wrong, or different, all the research says that. And so the teacher, as well as the students or the congregants or the Sangha people or whatever, they need to know that that happens and that they are not the good and bad parent. I mean, there might be aspects of that, but they need to do their own healing work around that, not expect them to be the, the perfect good and bad parent. Not only that, the research also says that we project God or Buddha or whoever onto that teacher. And, you know, they need to be addressing that, in my opinion, as well as the, the participants, Saga members, community need to realize that that's going on. That's consciousness raising. But we also need to be aware of the spiritual erotic that can be unleashed, that yes. there is a spiritual erotic. And that's yep. OK. You just one just doesn't have to act on it, just as the intellectual exactly. erotic can be unleashed. That's yes. part that you one just doesn't act on it. It will arise and cease. Right. But exactly. coming back again, what has been the impact that you've seen on church congregations when this has happened, when sexual transgressions have happened? Well, most of the time, the uh, priest or minister or teacher or whatever and the congregate don't, doesn't know that that's going on again. It's often a very gradual process. And then all of a sudden, they're, you know, having a session and either he grabs, you know, let's say he is the, clerk, you know, teacher grabs her or she grabs him. It could be either sex, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is ultimate. Oh, we've got everything. We've got emotional and we've got sexual and we've got, uh, you know, spiritual. But, but it, 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 that's not true. That's not true. It's not an equal relationship. You know, it, infidelity is any emotional or sexual intimacy that violates trust. That's the definition of infidelity. The definition of sexual harassment is sexual harassment involves any unwanted... Any unwanted comments about the body, yeah. Whereas sexual assault has to be, t it's seen as touch. If somebody forces yes. you to touch them or you are touched, yeah. Well, not only that, anything that makes you uncomfortable. Now, that's sure. a really broad, that's a really broad statement. But I think each person has to, has to dumb down what is uncomfortable, you know, because I know that's a really broad statement. But those are just two definitions of infidelity, infidelity and sexual harassment. So, you know, I mean, it, it's hard. It's it's very very tricky. Now, the what's what's the what's the impact on the um on the on the student on on the victim? What's the impact? Well, the impact is often a lack of trust. That's number one. Trust gets violated, and chances are, and I could be wrong, but a lot of people. 
people have often had trust violations in their past anyway. And so that triggers, and I'm doing a broad brush here, that triggers a trust violation. Also, it's like you want to feel safe, but it's not safe if you are not really giving yourself up, let's say emotionally or sexually, in a situation that is equal. And a lot of the literature says, if you're a teacher or a clergy or a priest or anything else, there is no such thing as mutual consent. And as we know in the Buddhist teachings, that you have to have a high, high order. I never can say the word right. Fiduciary, I guess is the word. Judiciary? Yeah, that's it. Where you have, you know, high loyalty, high self-care. You know, you have to be, unfortunately, right, wrong, or different. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to be above the bar when you're in that kind of leadership. And I know some teachers and leaders, and I won't say who or whatever, you know, says, wow, I didn't realize my personal life would, my personal life would reflect so much, you know, on my, uh, my teaching or my Buddhist life or whatever, or my Christian life. Well, it does. Unfortunately, when you step up to that bar, that's what happens. And well, we're talking right, about integration, isn't it? Integrating yes. all the different aspects of your life that they're just not separate. And this is right. this is the problem that actually people problem. have compartmentalized their, their lives. And yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and I also want to talk. I, I just wanted to bring up gaslighting because I think that's yeah. another thing that teachers or clergy who have power use gaslighting techniques on their students yes. to make them think they're crazy. Yep. And that's, I mean, gaslighting is a big deal across the board, whether it's husband and wife, you know, rather it's <laughs> teacher and student, clergy. And it's the thing about, and, and see, this is where, bless their hearts, rather it's, it's meditation or prayer or therapy or, you know, whatever, whatever way you do healing is to, you have, in my opinion, everybody, if I ruled the world, would have to do boundary work and would have to figure that out, figure out what boundaries are. Because with gaslighting, if someone starts to gaslight you and you have, in my opinion, a sen better sense of boundaries with yourself, you all of a sudden listen to that and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense, that's not valid, and that's not my truth. Now, I know that's a big order, and you for a lot of people, there's a lot of work that needs to be done around that. But I think people, you know, and I think in Buddhism too, in most religions, but particularly Buddhism, it says, you need to be in touch with your feelings. You need to know what those are. You need to be in touch with your body sensations. So if you're feeling in your gut that something's uncomfortable or it's not okay, that needs to be honored. And then what you do, number one intervention, is you go to a trusted person Rather, it's in your sangha, or it's a best friend, or anybody you can trust and say, hey, I'm having this feeling about this person, and this is what happened to me, and he brushed past, brushed past me and touched my butt. You know, I didn't think it was a big deal, and I'd make, you know what I mean? It's like you need to pass that by trusted others. But That's as you... Number one rule. It is a number one rule, but as you say, Sue, that... Many people who come to our Buddhist centers or Buddhist temples or monasteries or to the churches, 
they are people who have had trauma in their childhood. Yes. They've been more yes. than likely people yes. who have been sexually assaulted or sexually abused and yep. have left their body. They're not they don't even know how to be in touch with their body, even to listen to the actual sensations arising in their body, which is why it's, it's even more and more important for us who are in leadership positions to hold the boundary, I totally to agree. really hold the boundary. And just I when totally we were, agree. yeah, and when we were speaking early, you, you were talking about the impact on 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 the wife and and the family and of course we have uh -huh. to remember this because often when we we talk about sexual assault or sexual abuse or whatever we choose to call it we we often talk about the perpetrator and you know we talk about the the person who's been a victim of it but there are many victims of it these actions have consequences as we say in buddhism and from your experience working with that what impact does it have on the partners on the children when their partner has been busted for sexual assault or pedophilia or, or, or abusing their power it's apps i just got chills when you said that it's absolutely devastating and i've done this work for 40 years and some of the hardest work that I have done is working with the partners because they bless their hearts right wrong or different rather they're in denial or they have their own trauma and in some cases the people are so good at being under the radar that they don't even know they really don't like some people are in denial and some people aren't and like I said they're so good they don't know and then some people so many times with the partners I've heard well, I thought something was wrong, but I just didn't know what it is. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And often also it's because of their own trauma. So when this comes out, right, wrong, and indifferent, the partners are ashamed. They are so ashamed. And often they feel guilt. And of course, in a lot of cases, that guilt is unfounded, but it doesn't matter because that's what they're doing. So they feel shame and they feel guilt. They go, I should have known this, I should have done something, I should have intervened. You know, and it's just horrible. And most partners have the diagnostic, uh, uh, the diagnostic uh, criteria for PTSD, they really do. And PTSD, one of the biggest things with PTSD is feeling like you're going to die or someone important to you is gonna be hurt or die. So sometimes that's not the case per se, but they have all the other symptoms. But some people really, really do feel like they're going to die or be annihilated and their whole world falls apart not only that with some of the sanghas and the congregations what they do is that they don't know what to do with that and they're scared and they're hurt and so what they do is that they're upset with the teacher or the monk or the clergy and they they ostracize them but then they ostracize the wife or they ostracize the family and the kids and what's so sad about that is you know they haven't done anything wrong they're victims too and so it's like a double whammy and so I know you know we don't we want people to be held accountable and all of that but I think particularly in the Buddhist you know uh, uh, community to have if we can as much as we can I know people are hurt too and they have to go through their own trauma their own feelings but you know 
you know, often our goal is to come to compassion, right? For ourselves and others. And, and to, to, if they can, at some point, have some compassion, at least for the families, you know, and the, and the wives. Because nine times out of ten, and not only that, they're financial. A lot of, they lose houses, they lose income. I mean, it's absolutely devastating. And that's some of the hard And I, I hear you. I hear you, Sue. I, you know, I have to fess up that I was one of eight teachers who was part, well, we were whistleblowers and, and brought it to an organization's attention. And it was the hardest thing that I could ever have done because it's, right. it, it impacts everybody. And, and I had to really say to myself, if, if I was confronted with a police report with a mugshot of my partner on, I would have to do the right thing and go to the organization and say, hey, what are you doing? But nobody loves you for it. I mean, I, I lost sleep over it. I was completely stressed. All of us were completely stressed. Is this the right sure. thing? Did we do yep. the right thing? Maybe yep. it would have been easier not to have said anything. And when you see the aftermath of one's actions, you just think, oh, my God. So it, it, it impacts everybody. And I know that we acted in the, the best intention, but it's not easy. You know, it's, it's, it has an impact on the perpetrator, has an yep. impact on the victim, it has an impact on the family. And it's just, yeah, I, it's a horrible situation. Anybody, it's horrible for the perpetrator. It's horrible yep. for the victim. It's horrible for the partners for the children it's horrible for everybody the thing is i found and this is me doing this for four years okay is that even with that and i've gone through all that with thousands of people is that eventually it comes out where it should and that's hard to say when everybody's sitting in the pain and the guilt and the shame that yourself would feel doing that but I'm telling you, the perpetrator gets help or they don't, or they go on and do whatever they're going to do. The partner gets help, and either they work it out with the perpetrator and they move on and create a healthy, loving, spiritual relationship, or the wife moves on. And the kids, they have to look at that too. And at least the kids will know, from my experience, right, wrong, or different, even though it's really hard, is they will know their dad's a perpetrator and their mom's whatever she is, if she's anything or not. I mean, sometimes there's extreme uh, codependent behaviors or whatever. And the kids, I'm telling you, I can't tell you how many kids, especially adult kids, not the little kids as much, of course, say, I want to know what my family history is. Because I can look for uh, having addictions myself or marrying someone that has those addictions. And so oftentimes with the kids in the long run, it is really decreasing their suffering. So I know it's really hard because I see the end game and I've been doing this a long time, but it's very, very hard for everybody. But eventually the truth will set you free. And it has, again, the, the victim, the, it has a huge, huge 
impact on the victim. I mean, for the victim to be courageous, not just to come out about it, but actually not to back down because there's so much pressure on the victim uh, to keep quiet totally. or to withdraw what yep. they've said. Or what they're saying is not the truth or they're lying or blah, blah, blah. We see that in the media all the time, don't we? <laughs> The Me Too movement. Sure. Mm. So how do we, the big question, how do we create these uh, safer communities? And you have mentioned some of the things that we can do, but as it's not just about the individual, is it? It's about the group yeah. and how can we as a community, as a group, begin to create safer spaces for okay, all of us? Okay, I've got, I've got some, some feedback for that. <laughs> Uh, again, we talked about talking to a trusted individual if you can, and especially a child. Children need to be, in my opinion, educated within the Sangha uh, to be able to go to their parents or a trusted individual. So that's one thing. Another thing is demand if the person can, and I know it's not always easy because of the victimization, to tell the person to stop. So let's say a teacher keeps rubbing past a woman's uh, buttocks, you know, then she, if she could get enough courage, and I know that's not easy, I'm just giving some tenets here, would say, you need to stop doing that. Stop. Don't do that anymore. That would be one thing if they could. Another would be uh, some people need to tell the person no phone calls, no electronic communication, none of that. And sometimes a person, let's say in a sangha, if a person in the sangha wasn't going to be removed or didn't have that kind of issue, they, the person that's feeling uh, victimized or the, is co being come on to, they need to not be alone with that person ever. In a, it, it, they need to stay in a community situation. They need to watch for grooming, which is if a, if a teacher is giving someone special attention, giving them gifts, giving them a lot of advice, spending tons of alone time, that needs to be a yellow flag, not a red flag necessarily, but they and but flipping that, need to watch for grooming. Flipping that around that if we notice that a student is always giving teacher attention and giving gifts, we could actually speak to the teacher and just say, yes. oh, you, you know, what's going on here? You exactly. noticing this 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 projection and perhaps exactly. you know do you need to be holding more of a boundary not not making the teacher feel right. guilty but no, actually no. just noticing this there there's something not right here there's something amiss here and yeah. see what I think is that if you folks are doing this it's going to raise awareness not only of the sangha but of the teachers and so that they hear this or they know this is going on. They know people are going to have their eyes a little bit more wide open. And that's and really the crazy. other thing that I want to say, Sue, is it's got to be the group or the community. We know in families this sexual assault happens and nobody yes. says anything. Exactly. So you talk about extrapolating. Let's extrapolate what happens in the family into our spiritual communities. And yes. the same thing happens. Nobody says anything. Well, it happened to me. Why it right. happened to me. So it's going to happen to you. Keep right. quiet. It's not worth it. And actually right. the community has to start saying something to help the individual. 
It I isn't totally just agree. an individual thing. The reason why it continues is because the community colludes. Even in my no, own totally. spiritual community, I yep. know that some of the things that happened would not have happened if the community had said, no, this isn't right. This is, yeah, what's going on here? And See, it's and the same the in other communities. Yep. It's hard to, to rock the boat. You know, people go, oh, I don't want to cause a problem. Or this is what they say to themselves. I don't want to cause a problem. Or maybe it isn't what I think it is. You know, but that that needs to stop. And that's why talking together to trusted people, if you have someone that's trusted and say, hey, I've been seeing this with so-and-so. And here's what I've been seeing. Have you been seeing that? Or what do you think? Like, maybe they'll say no or, you know, but I mean, at least that's a start to be able to open up that conversation, right? Definitely. Yeah. And then some yeah. people, and I know this is really hard and I know a lot of people don't like this and it seems unfair, but sometimes people may need to attend a different sangha to feel safe. And that's not ideal, but that's what the literature says is that you sometimes cannot change the system. And so if you, like, let's say you go to a meeting and there's a group consciousness and they say, well, okay, this is what we want to do. And the person says, well, this is, this is triggering me or I don't want to do it. Well, they might say that's too bad. And unfortunately, that's really, really sad. But sometimes the literature says you have to start anew too. So at least that's to keep in mind if some people are really getting triggered and feel sad and other people are not like kind of going with that and so, I, one I mean, thing that i do as aspects one thing that i do want to say about being triggered this is i i think it's a real great practice of just as you said being aware of what's going on in the body because i always say to somebody you may be around somebody and you may have a an experience in your body, listen to it and take yourself out that situation. It doesn't mean to say that that person is going to assault you or rape you. Right. It's just, it's just that actually, for some reason, you don't feel comfortable. You, you, you experience vulnerability, just take yourself out of the equation. So we're not right. saying like, if you experience being triggered, then you point the finger at the person who you think has right. triggered you. No, right. take care right. of yourself. You, you're activated right. and we're no good to anybody when we're activated. So just remove yourself and take yourself out of the equation. Right. I Another thing that I really want to talk about, especially within the Buddhist community, because know we talk about being enlightened being a stream entry having insight and of right. course the question comes up we hear about our teachers our gurus and they've had these sexual assault they they've um, been perpetrators of sexual assault rape abuse harassment how can they have insight how can they be enlightened is this possible I mean it's it's one of the conversations I mean one of the things that I say I mean who can I say if somebody's enlightened or not I mean the, right. the one thing that I say is is that what it's taught me because I've been around people who have definitely got a lot more into intellectual knowledge than me uh -huh. perhaps more spiritual advancement than me but actually it tells me 
how strong in in our in our tradition we talk about the fetters the the mental bonds that tie you to suffering so there's there's self there's doubt there's rites and rituals and then we move into sense desire and ill will and it tells yep. me how strong the pull of sense desire is because that's what it is it's sense desire and totally. i think like you're still stuck there it like yep. you might have spiritual development but actually sense desire is coming back to lick you in the butt because if you are acting out inappropriately sexually that is sense desire that is the fetter one has not completely weakened it it's how can you of weakened that fetter of sense desire if you're still acting out inappropriately right oh and that <laughs> that's so good that's such a big topic like my husband and I did, like I said, a three-year trip around the world. And I promised myself that when I went on the trip, I wasn't going to be a therapist, right? I just wanted to <laughs> experience. I was a nurse because I am a nurse. So I helped animals and I helped people from a nursing standpoint. But I said, no, I'm not going to be a therapist. Man. I just want to experience this. And what I would see so much time when we went to spiritual centers, I didn't care if it was Christian or Hindu or Buddhist or Jewish or what it was because we went to all of them. It was like people were in this whole spiritual thing, but they weren't really like looking at their, like you're saying, the sensations or their emotions. And I could see that because I'm trained and I can't turn my training off, right? But so much we don't. And, you know, I know at least in um, Tibetan Buddhism, you know, it's like a, you've got to go really deep, in my opinion. And you have to really get to the point where you really see your emotions and, and, and get in touch with them and get in touch with your mental states and get in touch with your afflictive emotions in particular and get in touch with your physical stuff and really see what's going on. You know, and I'm not saying that's easy and often you need help with that. You know, whether it's a teacher or a community or a retreat or what it is. But I mean, it's to me, it's all about clearing that stuff out you know and people are in the process of doing that on different yeah levels. we have to continually right? keep on looking at the bypassing and in fact we're not even going to see the bypassing because the bypassing is are the things that we don't know that we don't know <laughs> yes that's true. that's that's the problem we we well, know very little and we, we well, know that we say, don't know is that what you had said about people that have been raped or sexually assaulted or this and that. It's really important to do the grief work because so many people I would see that were on the spiritual path would deny that they had grief feelings because we are humans. We have grief feelings. And what I'm saying is don't wallow in them. But we need to, to be in touch with our anger, our anxiety, our depression, our appetites, our sleep or lack of it, our struggles with trust and feelings of safety. I mean, we need to be dealing with that as human beings. And the thing is, those things can be transitory if we continue to work on them. I, I love that heal, you, I, right? I love you say that because, and that's the same for our Buddhist gurus or Buddhist teachers who have been perpetrators, that it's a real yes. opportunity to work on oneself. And actually, I I just think that it can just be a huge teaching I, to come back from that because we are human. You know, when I think of 
pointing a finger at somebody who's been inappropriate. It's a reminder for me to point the finger at back at myself and where yes. am I still being unskillful? Because it's so easy to point my finger out there. And Isn't it? it's so it, easy for us to project, right? That's it. And we can always change. This is this is the great thing that actually it is human and these things do happen. And if they do happen and people are able to acknowledge, yes, it did happen. They have that hree, that positive shame. One can move on and move out of the ashes and create, can be a could be a great teacher for many of us, a great right. teacher for many of right. us who are able and, to move through that and come out right. the and other Right, and besides end. Buddhism or religion, I mean, I think that's what the recovery community is, period. Rather, it's no matter if it's 12-step or Buddhist or what a Christian 12-step, I don't care. I mean, that is that is the beauty. I mean, I we've all seen people change and grow and it's just so beautiful. And, and I think that's what recovery helps us with as well, besides religion and spirituality. If you put it all together, there's there's so many different avenues to do that. And um, you know, free, freedom is, you know, a goal to some extent, you know. Many of these people who have been perpetrators are our teachers, are our friends, are people that we like and love. Yep. And it's not about damning them and it's not about right. pushing them back. They're already in samsara. Why yeah, do we are, want right? them to stay in? <laughs> why do we want them to stay in samsara? No, it's about actually right. helping them out of samsara. Everything what I, changes. What I always say is compassion with accountability. I love that. <laughs> compassion with accountability. We, I love that too. Yeah. Isn't that great? I mean, cause we can have compassion, but Hey, you know, we are humans and we're here and we need to be accountable. So I love compassion with accountability. And what I say to people too, when they're having problems with their teacher or their priest or their minister or whatever, is I say, you don't have to, and this is hard for some people when they're really, really angry and they're in their trauma, but you don't have to give up the good. I mean, if you had a, a, a great teaching or an aha with a teacher, just because they've sexually misconduct, yes, that's horrible, and you have all your feelings about that. But, you know, grief is also about the positive as well as the negative. And you can still take that thing and say, yes, I learned that. And that's an isolated deal, and maybe I'm upset, and maybe they hurt me, and I don't trust them, blah, blah, blah. But we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, you know... Compassion isn't about that. Sure, Analio is it's great on compassion. One of our contemporary Buddhist teachers, and and he says, you know, compassion isn't about dwelling in the pity and feeling sorry for the person. Because what does that do? Right. You know, it's compassion with action. Yeah. Yes, I love compassion that. Compassion with 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 action. Just like compassion with accountability. <laughs> yeah. So Sue, it's been great uh, sharing time with you. I, I, it's like, again, I know that people are so used to the five minute fix or the 10 minute fix. And here yep. we've been for an hour chatting. Wow. And I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you would like to share before we complete this conversation. Well, I don't know. I think I've <laughs> it's really great. I think I think one thing I would say 
for the Sangha to keep itself safe would say, read books on boundaries. If you don't know what they are, and I would say, uh, you know, if you need to get professional counseling along with what you're already doing, I mean, not everybody needs that, whatever, but I'm just saying, and, and boundaries for you to get clear because a lot of us were never taught boundaries. We don't know what boundaries are. We didn't learn it in our family. And it's like, there's some great books on boundaries and you can just study that on your own or feedback with other people or, or go to therapy or whatever. No, I, 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 I love it more and more when we think of social justice and in our communities, we're looking at racism awareness, gender awareness, and actually yes. we need to have training in boundary awareness. It's, it's, totally. it's, it's important. And I totally yeah, and, hear and, you on that. Yeah. And there's a couple good books that I'd like to refer people to if they want. One that I really love is called Boundaries by Anne Catherine. And it's A-N-N-E and then Catherine with a K. She's, uh, the book is amazing. It's, it, she's a psychotherapist here locally in Seattle, believe it or not. Um, and that is a fantastic book, is Boundaries by Anne Catherine. And let me look. There was one other book I wanted. To I shall most definitely put that on my reading list myself. Yeah. Uh, there's another one here. Let me look really quick. See if I can find it. Uh, boundaries. Oh, and another one is. Oh, this is a great one. This is Boundaries and Protection. And it's by Pixie Lighthorse, which I think she's Native American, but I'm not sure. But uh, people are saying in the reviews that uh, any person that has addictions or have been traumatized should read that book. So that's Boundaries and Protection by Pixie Lightholz. Thank you. And then another book is Boundaries and Relationships by Charles Whitfield, MD. And he's been around since the 70s and have written like 20 books and he's really awesome. Great, it sounds... Work and it's just great. It sounds like that we could review some of those books most, most yeah. definitely. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for your wisdom and uh, yeah, your support. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, again, it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. It's been a, a privilege chatting with you. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for listening. If you're feeling heavy right now due to the content of the talk, I want to invite you to come back into the moment, connecting with an anchor, whether it be sounds you are hearing, sensations in the body, or sensations of breathing. Just letting our attention settle on this anchor of choice as this podcast comes to a close. I just want to thank you all for listening today. And may we continue to discover words and practices that bring us peace and share that peace with our communities. Hope to see you all Sunday for the live podcast. Get the link at BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash academy.